The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the second stage. We get another week of Jeff being out on the road uh, traveling, hopefully adding some value to some small businesses around. Um, for those of you that uh, got to listen last week, we uh, were able to talk with uh, Allie Harding, who's a partner of Orange Kiwi, a firm that provides assessment tools, training, and consulting uh, to advisors and owners uh, in understanding and leveraging the philosophy of exits to the bottom line. I think it's actually it's a pretty uh, a pretty interesting uh, uh, coupling of uh, last week's show and this week's show. Uh, you know, last week we obviously spent some time talking about how um, owners have a tough time getting their mind mindset around um, the exit. And today, uh, we're uh, thrilled to have Sean Hutchinson, who's CEO of Strategic Value Advisors. And the uh, website is www.buildvalue.today, if I'm, if, if I'm correct, Sean. Is that the, way, the correct website? That's right. That's correct. Wonderful. Sean is the uh, is the CEO of Strategic Value Advisors. Uh, SVA works with owners and management teams to rapidly and dramatically increase the uh, transferable financial value of their business and implement strategies to tax effectively harvest the results the resulting wealth. He is a well respected thought leader in va- in business value acceleration and owner transition planning. Over his career, he has helped hundreds of owners navigate the complexities of creating wealth from their businesses. His experiences have translated into SVA's unique exponential value creation program, next recognized as one of the most innovative in the value growth profession. Although he's previously served as CEO of a large uh, global real estate advisory firm, his heart belongs with his fellow entrepreneurs, like all of you listening out there. His uh, passion um, and commitment are grounded in his personal experience. The Hutchinson family owns and operates a 60-year-old manufacturing business that will soon uh, transition to the third generation. Sean, thank you very much for joining us here on the second stage. A pleasure, Brendan. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, was mentioning right before we started, um, you uh, know a lot of uh, my EO uh, uh, brethren and sisters here in uh, the Cleveland market, and it's, uh, you know, because you're in uh, in San Fran, so it's, uh, you know, kind of a, a small world, small world. You, I guess, have a pretty good affiliation with the Exit Planning people, Exit Planning Institute? I do. I've been involved in the Exit Planning Institute, uh, been a certified Exit Planning Advisor since November of 2008. Um, president of the EPI, Chris Snyder, and I are really close friends. We went through the program together. I often say he was my study buddy. We said that's how we met, right next to one another in that class. I've been uh, involved since then and currently sit on their National Board of Advisors. I'm a faculty member for the certification course, and I'm also president of the Northern California chapter of EPI. 
So you really are involved. <laughs> I really am involved. Yeah, I spend a lot of time on it. But it's a great organization. And, um, you know, I think it's one of the responsibilities of any professional to uh, contribute to their profession and to try to give back. So I spend a lot of time on it and gladly so. And we actually met you, uh, Barbara listened to a presentation you gave at the AMNAA um, conference about, about I guess, what we'll talk about here. And uh, so you seem like you're, you're actively involved in a lot of these uh, business uh, kind of best practices organizations. I am. Yeah. And I enjoy uh, speaking about it because I think these are really important issues. You know, there's a lot at stake here for business owners. And, and uh, we as advisors, I think, can do a lot of good. But I'm not... Uh, I'm not sure we have it down cold yet. There's a lot to talk about here because um, you know the statistics point in a direction that we may not getting we may not be getting uh, as good a result as we would like, and so you know we have to come together and and address that. It's a great opportunity, yeah, but it's, this is hard work. Yeah, and maybe maybe address that before we kind of get. I'd love to hear about manufacturing businesses, especially uh, you know as you know the world kind of transitions, especially in the United States. But maybe get into some of the statistics. I mean, it's it's pretty overwhelming. We we touched on them a little bit last week with with Allie Harding, um, but the suggest statistics aren't aren't great about the probability of people being able to transition into you know, getting the value out of their business. Uh, they're terrible, as a matter of fact, and that's kind of the sad part of the story. So, you know, Pepperdine. Uh, University's Private Capital Markets Project has studied this pretty thoroughly, and what they found is that in general, out of 100 businesses, when if they go to market, 80 of those 100 will be immediately rejected by the marketplace when they try to transition, and primarily uh, that's because they're just not ready, and the owners haven't, uh, owner or owners really haven't had the kinds of discussions that they need to have about what a transition means to them, how it will affect their identity, what are they going to do in life after business. How are their employees going to be treated after they transition out of the business? There's a lot to think about. And because they haven't really prepared for those conversations, those things come up. They get cold feet, right? Um, deal doesn't get, uh, deal doesn't get done. The owners aren't particularly well educated in this area. It is complex. There's no question. It's unlike anything I think that an owner in terms of business will ever go through. Um, incredibly intrusive in many ways can be a huge distraction, can actually hurt the business. So that readiness, that preparation, being educated, understanding how the process works is a huge advantage. And I think, as the statistics say, eight or nine out of ten just don't, uh, haven't gotten ready for it. The second piece is that other remaining 20, maybe 12, will survive past the first level of due diligence, which means something as simple, at least to us, seems as simple as putting together a good document set, just having a good data room so that they can start the process. Generally speaking, as soon as a buyer or investor sees that they just can't get information or good information in a timely way from the owner and their team, the deal is off. So then we're left, right? We've got eight that fall out of that. Now we're left with 12 out of 100 who somehow kind of make it over the finish line. I think some of those stories are spectacular. Some of them are kind of lukewarm. Uh, But uh, no matter what, 12 out of 100 is not exactly getting it out of the park. Well, it's not, and it's fun when I hear you talk about that. I, I tell you, we, you know, Jeff and I uh, uh, are just we get a wonderful uh, kind of flow of business owners looking for for capital, and some of the stories are just fantastic, and we'd love to back them. And then, you know, we kind of say, look, you know, they, they represent that their numbers are a certain way, and 
Well, we know that small businesses, it's, you know, they're not, they're not going to be perfect 99.9% of the time, but very, very often we get involved in, and there really is, they're not, they're not a cruel base. They, you know, it's yeah. kind of a modified cash basis. They, they've got big contracts, there's big swings and God, I could go on forever about, you know, you talk about, you know, that diligence piece, you know, you, you, you really have to be ready to answer all questions. And it's, and I hate to get on my soapbox so early in a, in a show, but you know, literally just having you know great financial statements that tell the story yeah. it, it adds a lot of value to your business is that a, do, you, do you agree with that comment absolutely i mean i think i think that's sort of the that's the first level that we're talking about i mean if you're if you're investing in or buying in a, a business you expect to have access to good financial statements but that kind of financial management you know managing the balance sheet in addition to the income statement and the cash flow understanding how it all fits together um Managing that next deeper level in the income statement, which, as you rightly pointed out, might be about the portfolio of clients, what the mix is, is there any client concentration, so on and so forth. All of those things are just value destroyers, and, and they, you know, I think any investor or buyer will will shy away immediately if they see those red flags. But this goes to a larger concept, I think, that we like to call value asset management. I actually coined that term a little while ago. And I like it because it positions the business value as an investment asset within the portfolio of the business owner. So we know that their wealth, their net worth is typically concentrated, heavily concentrated, really, in the value of their business, which means that they've got a big concentration in one stock. And that stock is super illiquid. It's not just illiquid. It's super illiquid. There's a, a, you know, an example of another illiquid asset is real estate, right? But there's a market for real estate. We can put a value on real estate relatively easily. We've got a lot of comps and there are, there are ready buyers out there for illiquid assets like that. Private capital, private stock is another story altogether. It takes a very careful approach to value asset management. Now, my contention is, and one signal of that, one, uh, one uh, sign of it is that um, business owners are not ready for that final conversation. They haven't managed the value of their business as a piece of their investment portfolio. It's totally undermanaged, which is very interesting to me. And I, and I, and I think it's, it's not just the business owner. If they go into a wealth advisor or a financial planner, a lot of times those, this, this big asset is kind of moved to the margin because, frankly, it's hard to deal with, uh, you know, the wealth management um, wealth management industry is not incentivized to deal with highly illiquid assets. And so they kind of push it over to the side and say, well, you know, it's there, but we're really not sure what to do. So it comes this little black hole that ultimately just kind of dissipates in the overall wealth plan, even though the owner will tell you that they depend on getting, harvesting that wealth out of their business in order to retire in the way that they imagine. So we've got kind of a conflict, right, uh, uh, between what, we, what the owner says they want to do and what the advisory community is really doing. And I think we have to bridge that somehow through um, conversation, methodology, better theory, better practice, better communications with the business owner, um, you know, being honest with ourselves and with business owners about the, about the issues that are going to come up. Hey, um, Sean, before we get uh, dive too much into it, um, I, I 
One of the uh, kind of uh, my background, one of the first companies I bought and uh, I still own a minority share of is a manufacturing business. And we manufacture air intake and exhaust for large diesel engines. And sometimes, you know, when you're having kind of a tough day in the private equity world, I go out there and I just listen to the machines kind of pound out metal and so forth. And uh, I have no idea what your family manufacturing business is, but it's uh, manufacturing such a... uh, it's just something we, you know, we, we don't see as much anymore of, and I'm bummed about it. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family's background in the manufacturing world. So my grandfather and his brother, my great uncle, started a business that really was a woodworking business, and it's, it's gone through a few changes over the years, but it's still a wood business. What we do now is we make uh, thousands of styles of custom um, hardwood cabinet doors and drawer fronts. They're made for typically higher-end uh, developers and builders, usually residential, but some commercial. Uh, back in the day, we made other things from wood. You may remember, uh, I don't know, Brendan, you may not be old enough to remember the old wooden skateboards. Oh, uh, I do, sure. A, yeah, they had the curve on the back of them, right? It was a single piece of wood with the curve on the back of them. Those aren't easy to make. Curved wood is not, it's kind of tricky. And uh, we'd make literally thousands of those every day and a big 18-wheeler would pull up and we'd load it up and take them off to, I think, Denver and they'd, put, they'd paint them and put the wheel sets on them, package them up, send them out for retail. And we used to do some other uh, interesting kind of intricate woodwork. But now, um, it's really come down to cabinet doors and drawer fronts. And we've got a great reputation for very high-quality stuff. The challenge, of course, is that our business is tied to the construction industry. So you can imagine the kind of uh, burden that we faced uh, recently as we went through the Great Recession because the market just simply dried up. And then when we started to come out of the market, uh, my dad, who runs the business today, he's 71, uh, found that a lot of the people that we've done business with over the years uh, either went out of business or just kind of aged out, right? So we had this yeah. whole portfolio of clients that we worked with for a long time, loved our product, always came back to us, and then they weren't in the market anymore. And a whole new generation of clients have replaced them, and it looks like there's going to be, obviously, a lot of upside. The problem that we have, I think, is, is kind of threefold. One, my dad, at 71, has begun to draw back from the business, right? So when you talk about business development, we really don't have a good sales team in place. Um, we've got a general manager that we've been training over the years in anticipation of the fact that I'm going to inherit the business, but I'm not living in Oklahoma City, and I'm not going to run it. So I'm going to have to watch over it from afar. Um, that poses some special challenges. But the second thing, the, the, I think the, the biggest issue right now is that dad is really in a position in his life that he doesn't want to go out and develop a new business, but it's absolutely necessary to keep the business running and growing. So what are we going to do with that, right? How are we going to develop a sales team? Then there's the financial engineering that goes along with that strategy, which is typically under managed in almost every small business. And then we've got the question of this, you know, Sean and the rest of the family have to manage this thing if something happens to my dad. And a lot of the knowledge in the business is concentrated in his head still. Um, So I'm not sure. If something happened to him, we'd have a real continuity problem. And I don't think that's all that unusual. I mean, I think this is a story that plays out in families all over the place. And yet, true to what I was just talking about, the value of this business is the majority of our net worth. Yeah, that's I, I, I smile as you're saying that because obviously we see that over and over again. And you know, I, I'm I'm uh, not 
uh, don't have the history that your family does, but uh, the business that my partner and I bought, we bought it back in 1998, and it, it's in a similar spot where uh, you know we've got a kind of a good core customers. It's it also is very cyclical. Uh, we you know we make. Uh, uh, pieces to really, really, really big pieces of equipment. So construction, mining, um, okay. you know, uh, oil and gas, uh, you know, air okay. conditioning, building, that sort of thing. And, and uh, so, you know, it, it moves in the, probably, probably the same cycles that your, your business does, but it's, yeah, uh, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's interesting. And there's lots of these businesses out there that, you know, that uh, have made a good living, but they haven't necessarily driven the value. Well, hey, well, I, we're going to take That's a, a very interesting point. When, if we can get our clients to make the shift from seeing their business as just a source of income to seeing their business as a piece of their investment portfolio, in fact, something that has value in and of itself. And that's a key shift. And it gets there that it totally changes the decision framework for them. They think and act differently after they see their business as something that should generate a return in excess of what they can take out of it as well. I love Huge. it. it- Sean, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, for those uh, people out there, please contact us at, uh, um, on Twitter at, at evolution underscore CP. Uh, you can also join the discussion uh, at hashtag the second stage, 2ND stage. Uh, you can email us, obviously, at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. And please, uh, if you have any desire to, to download this episode or others, uh, go to Voice America Business Channel, voiceamerica.com. And... Uh, um, as always, I would like to thank our sponsor, RSM LLP, formerly McGladry LLP, the leading provider of assurance, tax, uh, consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. With that, we'll take our first break and, uh, and be back in a couple minutes on the second stage. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. Many industries have been revolutionized by technology in the last decade. Books, music, TV, communications, and now it's happening to our money and the way we pay. Tune in to Breaking Banks with Brett King for a look at how technology and customer behavior will bring about more changes in banking in the next 10 years than in the last 200 years. Listen every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific on Voice America Business Channel or on AM 1160 The Voice. You'll never look at your bank account the same again. If you want to learn how to be a better leader, increase your level of business performance, and motivate your team and organization more effectively, listen for Performing at Your Best, Mindset Evolution with Luis Vicente Garcia. Luis Vicente and his guests will share their expertise and enthusiasm in helping you to succeed. It's combining that drive with business skills that will do just that. Tune in live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to The Second Stage. We're here with Sean Hutchinson, CEO of Strategic Value Advisors. Um, the show is on employee engagement matters. Uh, Sean, I, I, I consider and talk about manufacturing all day and why there's, you know, it doesn't seem to be as many of those inbound manufacturing companies as, as, as one would expect in the Midwest or, or any other place. But uh, let's get off to uh, employee engagement and, and maybe kind of give us an idea of your background and, and, and why you decided to, uh, to start this company and focus on these uh, on value creation. Well, I think, I think we started Strategic Value Advisors, one, because we saw a, a legitimate and broad business opportunity. So there's always that piece. And, and what I mean by that is just kind of following the see-a-need, meet-a-need model. Um, I, I can't think of a situation that I've run across over the years when I've been uh, advising business owners or even just talking to business owners where value creation, one way or another, was on their mind. Um, they didn't really know what to do about it. But, you know, they had in the, in, the, in the back of their mind or explicitly all of the conversations that we were having were really about, am I getting enough out of my business to, one, sustain it and help it grow, two, uh, compete in the marketplace, position my business accordingly, um, and three, get something out of it at the end, harvest some kind of wealth. Are we creating enough wealth in the business? Is it transferable to another party? And how am I going to be able to harvest this, or am I going to be able to harvest this at the end of the day? Now, in 2008, when, when we became certified exit planning advisors, we really were responding to the baby boomer demographic, and I think everybody is familiar with that, but 65% of the businesses in America are owned by baby boomers, and there's going to be this huge transition right out of those businesses, a lot of you know, trillions of dollars, presumably, of wealth transfer at that point, very high stakes for our economy in the United States. But that was predicted in 2008. And it probably because of the Great Recession, it hasn't materialized on the same timetable. But I think it's going to happen at some point. It's just kind of hard to know exactly when. So we thought, let's talk about transition planning. Let's talk about exit planning because, hey, everybody must need an exit plan. They don't have one. They need one. But that conversation really didn't go anywhere. We tried to have it with business owners, and they were just highly resistant to having it. And I'm sure you've had people on your show that have talked about this. I've got my own opinions of the, of the reasons around it. But when we chat, so I started looking for a trigger question, right? Something that would get them to lean in. And what I found was when I asked them, do you know what the value of your business is today? They would lean right in. And they'd say, you know, one of several versions of I have no idea. I think I have, you know, some idea based on X, Y, or Z. I'm pretty confident, right? It was, it was whatever, whatever their answer to that was really didn't matter. What it said to me was they're curious about value. And, in fact, it was a little bit of a trick question because it would be absurd for any business owner to say as, as an answer to that question, no, I don't know, and I don't care, right? So we knew that yep. it was going to, that that conversation was, in one way or another, going to move forward. The question was, where is it going to lead? Our view has expanded since that simple question into, look, 
uh, value creation and value acceleration are really where the heart of the matter is. We can't have the conversation about transitioning or exiting until we have gone through some type of structured form or formal value creation program. And in fact, until the culture of the businesses that we work with have actually shift, has actually shifted over to something sustainable around value creation, which is the part that this employee engagement question, I think, is, is so, so important to, to, to be a part of this conversation because it probably matters the most, in my opinion, but it's the least talked about piece of value creation, culture of value creation um, that we try to install. So we got into business because we saw them leaning in. We got into business because we know that there's a big need out there, a lot at stake. And we got into business because we found it to be very challenging, uh, piqued our interest, obviously. We thought there was an opportunity to do something special. And I think that's what we've accomplished. How often, um, how often when you talk to an owner and ask them what they think their business is worth, do they have a much higher number than what the market views their business to be worth? You know, I think conventional wisdom is, in almost every case, they have an unreasonable value in mind. But I haven't found that, to be honest. I think that owners are pretty smart uh, in terms of trying to find a range of value that they think uh, that they think their business might fit into. And um, uh, a lot of the times, when we run a calculation of business value, or we, you know, our, our value, we try to come at it from several different scenarios, mostly within a transactional context. Um, they're not far off in the beginning. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. And I think that every owner, when they get into, I have seen owners become unreasonable about value when they know that there's a buyer or investor coming to the table. And then all of a sudden it becomes this sort of game, right, where they're not going, they're not going to sell the business at the value that's reasonable. They've got kind of a chip on their shoulder or something that causes them to drive that value up to cat and mouse. But in general, behind closed doors, I have found that the owners know a lot about their business and are pretty aware of the risks and what it might mean to value. The, the question is, really, are they willing to invest in and do the work necessary to take the risk out of their business to the extent that it can be and really create uh, true value in a big way? And that's really about, are they willing to do the work? Are they and their team willing to do the work? And that's another question all the time. You know, it's it's interesting. I you know I'm I'm uh, I gotta turn fifty a week from today. It's gonna be a little painful for me, but I, I'll get. I hopefully as a as a <laughs> one of the CEOs of our business has said, Brennan, you'll be lucky to get there. But uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you gotta bless every day. He'll yeah, exactly. Survive, I can tell you. But you know, it's interesting. You go back to uh, you know MBA school a long time ago, and um, and you know, and kind of the the training that I think you know received originally in, in business and so forth. And this employment engagement thing wasn't. You know, it wasn't as big. The value investing, the you know, the the some of the things yeah. that we talk about and, and hold true to today, and and maybe talk about you know why is why is employment engagement so important to this value creation? I mean, it's it's it seems crazy to to old people like me. Um. So, if you look at methods of creating value, let's let's the actions that affect market value. Let's say that generally fall into three categories. One is to increase earnings, and I think a lot of business owners instinctively understand that and drive toward it. Now, in doing that, they may be putting uh, their business at risk in a lot of different ways. They may be discounting pricing in order to hit a top line. They could be, you know, adding customer concentration to their portfolio because they 
because they believe that getting that big whale of a customer is a great thing, and in many cases it can be, but then it has to be managed going forward. So increasing earnings to de-risking the business, reducing risk, which is really the big category that drives value, but it's the one that seems to be under uh, underappreciated by a lot of owners, and in fact, not particularly well advised on the consultant side, I think. And then the third way is really to position the company for a high-value sale, which you know, has to do with um, competing better and making sure that the market knows that you are. So... But the thing, if you look down the list of all of the things, increasing earnings, the ways to reduce risk, ways to position the company, I have never seen on the list of value creators engaging the employees, which is very interesting to me. Because if you have a company of 200 people, let's say you're a $50 million business with 200 employees, and if the owner and management team engage around these issues, which is probably 10 out of the 200 people, and you don't really communicate what's going on or engage the employees so that they think and act like owners in this process, I don't know how you get this done. Ten people can't do that. Ten people can't sustain it. It's a good idea. It's a bunch of good ideas, and in some cases a really good program that will never stick because the culture has not been prepped um, adequately to actually adopt the principles and behaviors and best practices that go along with value creation. So it's just fascinating to me that we talk about all this other stuff, business school stuff, as you rightly point out, a lot of other, uh, you know, technical lingo around business and the way that it's actually done. But very often, we as advisors don't promote employee engagement as part of our program. Now, why? That's a good question, but I think it's mostly because... uh, Owners, management teams, we, everybody in the world maybe doesn't like to manage, we don't like to manage people. And so this brings up that kind of um, reservation, if you will, that, hey, once we get into employee issues, we're into a territory that's just going to be painful. So let's avoid it. That's that's pretty amazing. And then you know, I you know, through EO and through some of these wonderful uh, kind of uh, uh, organizations, uh, peer peer organizations, you know, you, you know, you you get an entrepreneur that says, I'm you know, I'm going to hire myself out of a job. I'm going to hire this great manager to manage my business. You know, and they go out and hire a person that's fully capable of managing the business and. And of course, you know they're still the little—they're the dictator. So, um, right. you know, it, it's, <laughs> they don't feed control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't give the, the authority to the next generation. They just—you uh, know—it's name only. You know, which is which is pretty amazing because that's that's. I mean, I don't know. If, I've uh, for those entrepreneurs out there that don't really want to, you know, give control and so forth and want to hire this manager. I've I've right. yet to see it work. So you know, if, if you guys can get it to yeah. work, <laughs> take a video but, and know, send it's it a, in. It's, I think it's just a it's a difficult transition. And again, you know, there uh, in many cases entrepreneurs or owners feel like they have to do it. But you know, it's it's a tricky thing to do. First of all, I mean, if you don't have all of the other kind of cultural procedural business practices built around it. I mean, it's not going to be a smooth transition. And I think the majority of the time probably will not meet your expectations or, you know, flame out spectacularly. But, right, let's talk about, you know, oh, ahead, if, if you've built the culture around employee engagement, it's a lot easier to do. And I think it's absolutely necessary. By the way, employee engagement within an organization will make that succession far easier because you'll have multiple choices within the organization because folks who are engaged usually step up to the next level. And that kind of discipline is worth a lot. 
So let's talk about why companies with high employee, employee engagement are more valuable. Why is that? Well, first of all, if I'm looking in from outside as an investor, and you, you, can, you can identify with this. You're always worried about in key positions, right, in key positions within the company, what happens if the owner sells and then leaves? What are you left with? Will other people follow them out of the organization? Uh, how are you going to retain the best people in the organization? And if you look at recent studies, right, CEOs ought to be worried about this. CEOs are worried about this. Because I think it was Gallup or maybe Deloitte that did a study not too long ago. It was last year where they found that roughly 75% of employees worldwide were completely disengaged from their companies. That's a shocking statistic. And so you're going and investing in a company or buying a company, and everybody will say, hey, people are the heart of the company, right? People are your best asset. But if, if they're not engaged, if that company is meaningless to them and they just assume be somewhere else, which may be a little bit better, or maybe they leave because they get a little better, you know, some better pay or better benefits or whatever, and who can blame them? If it's not an engaged culture, it's not really fun to come to work. They're not, they're not putting their brains to work. They're not being asked to do anything. They don't understand really why they're there and what they contribute. Then you've got a huge problem. I don't know that I would invest in a company that has broad employee disengagement or poor, uh, a poor culture. And I'm sure you wouldn't either. So just de facto, those companies with an engaged culture are going to be more valuable because you're going to be able to tell. You're going to go in and you're going to see that ideas are flowing from the employees, uh, not just from the management team or the owner. You're going to see that people are taking responsibility for their work. They're fully accountable for the results. They understand the metrics. In fact, in most cases, they've come up with them. They probably have scoreboards, right, dashboards that are helping them run the business. They are in control. Businesses that are engaged are disciplined, and disciplined businesses are simply worth more. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I look at it, you know, whether you're a financial person or a marketing person or a manager, the fact of the matter is the more, the easier your business is to predict, you know, the, the, the easier it is to understand. And quite frankly, you know, exactly. usually drives value. And if you have a, you have a well, deep, well-rounded management and, and employee base, it's just, it's just easier to understand, predict, and, and, you know, be sure that the, the, that the people are going to stay together. And it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. pretty neat. He get, maybe talk it about is. what, you know, what, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I said it is. You're right. He maybe talk about some of the things that owners, you know, owners can use to engage employees around this value creation idea. I think there are a lot of tools out there, honestly, but I can think, I can think of a few, um, that I like a whole lot. So one is this concept of ownership thinking and full disclosure. I like this concept well enough that I actually invested in the company called ownership thinking. So ownership thinking is really very simply is how to engage your employees so they think and act like owners. And when I talk with owners about that, wouldn't you like your organization, your employees to think and act like you, right? Like owners. Then they're excited by that because they instinctively understand that, quite frankly, that's what they've been wanting to achieve for a long time and they've been fighting kind of a counter trend and they really haven't known how to do that so ownership thinking is a nicely structured simple to understand program that gets that ball rolling i don't think it's a standalone program necessarily i think that it it sandwiches it combines well with things like eos entrepreneurs operating system and 
and something like lean manufacturing, if you're in the manufacturing space, war on waste is another program. So you can com- sort of mix and combine these things in very powerful ways. I like also, I like simple tools. So something like the one-page business plan um, and the platform that Jim Horan has created around that. You know, these are ways, get, getting, employees like to be involved in things that don't seem, um, that, that, are, that aren't so complex that they're totally opaque, right? So these simple kinds of implementations using these tools, I think, are very effective. Now, one of the things that we've been able to do is come up with some cre- pretty creative ways to get people engaged in planning and execution. So business plans have been problematic for a long time, and I think Jim Hurry at One Page Business Plan has, has gone a long way towards solving the problem of the scope creep in business planning, which is, you know, that business plan that's sitting over there on the side of the conference room table, right, that just keeps growing and growing yeah. and growing until everybody just, you know, puts the plant in front of it and tries to forget it. So uh, so I think we, we uh, you know, embracing planning is a very important part of the value creation process. We don't, we certainly don't dispute that. But the question really is, what's the outcome of a good planning process supposed to be? Is it a big, fat business plan? Is it a one-page business plan? And does that really get us there? So we, I was, I was really struggling with this over the years. You know, why aren't we getting the result that we want? People know that planning is important. They want to engage in it, but we're still not getting it to stick. We're not getting the level of engagement that we want. So I was watching television one night, and I just, I liked the shark tank. So I was, I was just sitting there kind of zoned out, and I thought, wow, wait a minute. Maybe we could do a shark tank of some sort that would really shift from passive planning, right? Plan, write it down, done in the echo chamber of the, of the boardroom, right, where the management team sits and they toss around ideas and every idea might not be a good one, but they kind of convince themselves one way or another that it ought to be in the plan and the thing just keeps growing. There's no discipline to it. We thought, well, let's shift it to pitching, right? If you have to pitch to a group that you're trying to persuade to believe in your story, believe in your plan, you have to make an argument. You have to organize the pitch so that it tells a story. So it's a plan come to life, in other words. And you've been through a lot of pitches over the years, right? You, you see books, you see presentations from owners. Some work better than others. But the skill that goes into actually being able to stand up in front of a group of people and convince them that your story is worth listening to, and in fact is so compelling that they might want to get their checkbook out, is a real crucible. And so we started doing this and found the engagement around planning skyrocketed. So we'll bring in private equity, we'll bring in uh, M&A advisor, we'll bring in the, the company's bankers. They'll sit as the sharks, right? Now, this is supposed to be a constructive, exciting exercise. And uh, we always tell the sharks, quote, unquote, that that's what they're there to do is really help the team build their skills, not tear them down. And we don't want any Mr. Wonderfuls in the room. <laughs> so it has worked so well that we do it with all our clients. And, and I love that the whole process comes alive, that there's give and take, that they're excited to do it, that they build a skill that they didn't, didn't have before. And, and so we, we basically said, stop planning, start pitching. And every, it's still the same process. It's still a good process, discipline to come up with the plan. The question is, what's the output? And we've always said the output is less important to us as long as it's an engaging output, then the process is because the process is really what counts. Yes, what's interesting is I hear you talk about you know kind of pitching and 
And I smile because I started uh, kind of, uh, I left uh, commercial banking and, uh, when I was 28 years old, which for those of you people that can do the math, it was a long time ago. And um, I had a great group of customers. And, and I remember, and I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to go out and own my own business. And, and I remember going out and pitching them on a deal. And the first time I pitched it, the questions they asked, I'm like, oh, my God. And I had to go back and change, change the pitch. Yeah, exactly. and, Mm-hmm. And it still happens today. You know, it's like, you know, I come up with an idea and we'll go out and pitch it. And, you know, it gets, it gets a lukewarm reception. And then people tell you what's, you know, what they don't like about it. And some quite times, right. you know, it, it forms a much, much better, much better deal. And, you know, sometimes you got to kill it because they're, they're not. Uh, That's right. And sometimes. So it's it really is, and quite frankly, it you know is a is a person that, that wants to be in business and you know, kind of get out there. It really it really can be the the fun part about it. So, hey, we uh, we're gonna go take our our our, our last break. Uh, so those uh, those people uh, out there, please uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with uh, the the last uh, part of the, the second stage. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of, a team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance. Tax. Consulting. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. 
Welcome back to the second stage. We're here with Sean Hutchinson, CEO of Strategic Value Advisors. We had just uh, talked uh, about uh, you know a tool that uh, that Sean uses, uh, you know, in the, to get people to kind of pitch their ideas and so forth. And and uh, you know, kind of staying on that on that for a second here, Sean. You know, it's interesting if I think back uh, through the break and so forth about um, you know some of the advisors now that I have that. Anytime I have a, a new a new deal, a new opportunity, something else, I'm kind of thrown around. I always just I pick up the phone and I pitch them, and uh, mm-hmm. and just because I know that they've got an open mind and they won't hold it against me, because you know, they know it's not perfect, and and that's a it's a it's a pretty interesting. I never I never thought about you know me kind of running through a through a through a weekly or monthly Shark Tank, but I guess that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, it, no, it's interesting that you use that tool instinctively. And maybe maybe there are entrepreneurs and owners out there who do the same thing. One, one thing that we've been able to do is expand that uh, beyond, you know, just the owner or just, you know, uh, into the entire management team. And it, it, it's really fun to watch people go into a higher gear. Um, you know, you just see when we start working with a client, in, in particular with their management team around strategy and value building, because everything that we do is really value building. We don't recommend to our clients any program, initiative, action that we feel doesn't build value. There's a lot of stuff that you can fix in a business, but there are very specific things that you need to do to build the value. So you have to focus on that. But to see the management team go into a higher gear, and we usually see it within 30 days of starting the work, they make the transition from $50 an hour thinking to $5,000 an hour thinking, or at least they begin that transition and, and boy, um, you know, color comes back to their face. It's fun to come to work. The owner feels better. It's really just a remarkable kind of thing to see that level of engagement. Now think about what would happen if you push that all the way through to the last person standing in the organization, then you got something very special. All right, so I, I want to get into some of the, the stories, uh, you know, success stories. I also want to know what, if, if it doesn't work, what's the number one reason something like this doesn't work? The owner didn't stand behind it 150%. So something that you said earlier that I think is is really important is, um, you know, th- there can be a lot of lip service going towards employee engagement. Sounds good. I want my employees to be engaged. Yeah, let's give them the opportunity. But when it really, when the rubber really hits the road, um, the owner or the CEO or whoever's really in charge of the organization has not transferred enough authority to the next generation of managers or even down into the organization. Decision-making is still concentrated at the top. Or worse, they extend it and then pull it back and extend it and then pull it back so the message is inconsistent and everybody just stops because they know it's not an authentic, uh, not an authentic program. You know, I we hadn't talked about that, but I knew the answer. I was like, every we always say at Evolution that if if, you know, the... If, if if the program doesn't work, it's because the management didn't fully embrace it, and we see it over and That's over right. and over again. But I will tell you that you know the people that do embrace it, they you know they they it's like there's this big aha moment, and they go, oh my god, I, you know uh-huh. I you know can't believe I haven't been doing it much much you know much longer, and you know it's a so yeah. maybe let's let's maybe roll into some of the some of the the fun success stories, example of how uh, how things uh, maybe didn't go well, and then maybe we'll roll into how things maybe did go well. Um. Well, you want to start with the bad or the good? Uh, let's do a quick bad one, and then we'll roll because then we got okay. about eight. Mi- yeah. Sure. So uh, we were working with a uh, pretty large catering company. Um, it was really, you know, it had some interesting challenges. So the organization has about uh, 
oh, seven or 800 employees at any given time, but a lot of those employees are seasonal. So they like most catering companies, they sort of have a lot of part-time workers, right? They rotate in and out. So establishing a culture that goes down, you know, that goes throughout the entire organization at, at one time that really engages those part-time or seasonal employees is not an easy thing to do. What they chose to do is rather than attempt to do that is uh, really only focus on 80 full-time employees that they considered to be the core of the company. Um, I don't think that's a bad place to start, but it can't be the end. And um, so the program was modestly successful in the beginning because they're, as usual, around the employee engagement. Uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. It's a new way of thinking. really piqued their interest. They felt like there was a chance that they could learn and use a skill that, uh, that had so far not been available to them or had eluded them for one reason or another. Um, but then the owners didn't perform. They didn't. Uh, they, so their goal, obviously, was to get their employees to think and act like owners. But when it came down to it, the owners, in my opinion, didn't think and act like owners. And so the employees... Uh, didn't either. They didn't set a good example. And so enthusiasm for the program burned off. We call it fatigue, employee engagement fatigue. It can happen, certainly. You see it in employee uh, stock ownership programs, ESOPs, where the ESOP becomes fatigued for the same reason. Owners and management failed to treat the program with the respect that it deserved and therefore sent mixed messages to the employees about, one, whether they believed in it, two, were they going to uh, really transfer the authority to make it meaningful. So um, that's a good example. That that company, unfortunately, got absolutely nothing out of employee engagement. Um, and, and sometimes the risk is that um, the, the culture, if, if it's not executed well, the culture can actually become worse on the back end. It's kind of a rubber band effect, right, where they, where they reach, they, 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 they stretch themselves for employee engagement, which is the right thing to do, but then when it snaps back, there's a lot of trust issues in the organization, uh, and it can become toxic. Kind of like pulling back the, em- the emperor having no clothes, and they go, my God, he really didn't have any clothes, or whatever. You know, It's like he really yeah, isn't going to embrace yeah. this stuff. Anyways, yeah. I'm sorry. Any, anytime that an employee is thinking to themselves, no matter what you say to me, uh, I don't believe you, um, then you've got a huge problem. And that, I think, is when that 73% of people worldwide, or whatever that figure was, feel totally engaged from, disengaged from their work. I'm sure one of the major reasons is because they feel like they're lied to more often than not. So truth is a big piece of this, authenticity. Um, success story, a friend of mine up in Minnesota runs a very successful graphics and printing company. Now, that's an interesting business to be in today. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that they say to their customers once they got their business reoriented and reengineered from traditional printing to other things is that um, we save you paper, which is a very odd thing for a printing company to say. It's counterintuitive. He instituted three programs, lean manufacturing first, because they're a manufacturing company at the heart. Uh, he, he did, uh, he's done the entrepreneurial operating system as well, which focuses on the management team, broad strategy, and then he did ownership thinking. So he's got a nice sandwich going. And they've had it going for a long time, by the way. They've had it going for over a decade. And now uh, the ownership thinking program, which involves scoreboards and you know employee engagement around the business of business, it's financial literacy, business literacy, it's rapid improvement plans, so that people are really engaged at a lot of different levels. They've actually pushed that from the entire enterprise down into their departments, so that there are many 
ownership thinking, employee engagement programs, mini, M-I-N-I, programs running down into the organization just as they've cascaded it, in other words, down, 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 down. And so that's how, that's how you get employee engagement down to the last person standing, right, is you have, it is front of mind for them every day, and importantly, they get rewarded for it. So this company has an incentive plan where everybody in the company shares uh, in profit over and above a threshold of profit because these programs should be self-funding. Incentives should not be a cost to the company. They should be a benefit to the employee, but only if they reach a minimal result and exceed it. So it's worked beautifully for them. Um, but again, the owner is a really smart guy, and he never let up on it. He, uh, he has said to his employees over and over again, I believe in you. I will stand by you. We will get this done together. I am not joking. And he's never mixed the message. He might have had some dark moments at home after a cocktail. I don't know. <laughs> but he never let the employees see that. Well, I and I suspect in any of these deals, you know, there, if if the if the employees don't feel that the senior managers are are living, breathing, you know, this this process, it's not going to work. I mean, you know, it's it's they've got to right. see these people acting these values, doing you know, doing you know, doing what they say they will do, or in 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 you know, I I I can't imagine we go any other way. Yeah. Well, an authentic culture of value creation, as we like to call it, begins with the owner. There's no question. And one of the first things we do in our intake process is try to talk, before we actually take a client on, try to talk with the owner or owners uh, to assess, help them self-assess and help us assess whether they really feel strongly enough about doing the work, whether they can really get behind their employees and their company, whether they have a vision for engagement and value creation that is firm at 150% all the way through understanding that it is a long process. It takes a lot of energy. And in fact, they've got to stop uh, doing the head down work, what we call the head down work, and they've got to lift their head and look to the horizon, which is, you know, managing the moment is not an easy thing to leave behind. Everybody is really kind of trapped in that in many ways. So they've got to get out of the daily routine, lift their head and look towards the horizon. And the owner isn't the only one that has to do that. The entire management team has to do that. But once they do, then the transformation begins and the engagement starts and it will play out through the entire organization. And I can tell you, it dramatically increases value, but it also just makes better businesses, more fun, more interesting, more able to compete. It's the right thing to do. I, I love it. We obviously have talked about a lot of things, Sean, and, and maybe kind of what's the one or two things that you would ask our listeners to remember from today's show? I would say no matter what you do, and this may be obvious if people have been listening to the entire show, no matter what you're doing, no matter whether you are engaged in a simple process improvement uh, or seeking some kind of waste or inefficiency in your business or planning, uh, whatever it is, don't forget that that message and that, that cultural shift has to, be in, it has to engage everybody in the organization, not just the people that are doing it. So whatever you're doing, I have seen so many management teams make great changes to the organization, uh, come up with fantastic ideas, owners and management teams alike, and then never really communicate it and get other people in the organization excited about it, which is a huge lost opportunity. And so my message is, whatever you are doing, make employee engagement fully throughout the organization a piece of your thinking. It's going to make you more successful. 
Well, I tell you, it's uh, you know, it's it's so it's such good advice, and it's just amazing how how few people actually do it. Um, well, we'd like to uh, again, Sean, thank you uh, so much for uh, for dialing in and talking, or, or for spending an hour with us. Uh, we, you know, it's uh, it's great advice, and uh, um, appreciate you spending the time. Hey, next week, which is actually uh, Jeff is going to handle this by himself because I'll be traveling for my I mentioned earlier my big five zero birthday, March seventh. Uh, so um, write that one down in everybody's calendar. Jeff will be talking to Joan Crane, who who's the uh, Global Family Wealth Strategist at BNY Mellon uh, Wealth Managers, uh, talking about the second stage. So please, uh, everybody, uh, take, uh, take Sean's advice and uh, passion for possibilities. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.